in worship. That was wonderful. Can, can we just give another round of applause for Nathan and Jules? That was fantastic. And also, just like to throw out, the amount of work that goes into a worship service is, is shocking. Uh, just seeing how many people connect and uh, the, the, from, from the text to the band, all the scheduling, the practice, all that. So uh, thank you, band. Thank you, everybody that pulled that together. A wonderful time of worship just so we can be introduced to the King of Kings this morning. And it's a, such a great morning to worship him. It's a great morning to, to praise him and to do that together in fellowship. And um, just to, like, would like to, if you, in case you're wondering who Nate and, and Jules uh, are, they are interviewing for our role of worship director as Matt uh, takes another path and, and answers God's call in a new place. Uh, they are interested in potentially participating with us in that way. So be praying about that. Be praying about them as a couple and a family and, and all the things that go into that type of decision. So uh, that would be great. Um, we are starting off uh, last week, we started off our series Together, and you can see it on our banner here. Uh, together is a series to discover um, what it means to be the church together, what it means to be connected. And we talked last week about the word ecclesia, and ecclesia is this called out group of people that are on God's mission that, that God is calling out, and that's what we are. That's what a church is. And um, Last week, we talked about devotion to fellowship and gospel-centered teaching and uh, the Lord's Supper and to prayer, and, and that's where we left off last week. Are you ready to devote even more and more and more of you to those things? And we got that story from Acts 2, this amazing picture of what happens when a group of people does that, when a group of people devote themselves to these things. Um, and it's exciting. I t I'll tell you, writing a series like this is so exciting for a lot of different reasons. I, mean, I, I get to do this week in and week out. I get to sit back and relax and, and, and discover with God what the sermon is going to be, what the series is going to be, and, and even really what the church, the future of the church might look like. And this is what's so cool. This is what's so cool. And God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. Grace Chapel has this rich, rich history of togetherness. And if you've been around here for any amount of time, you, you have memories and stories and things to share about how this church is connected. In fact, when I came here first, I heard story after story about, well, the thing that called me to Grace Chapel or the thing that I knew when I found Grace Chapel, it was home, was how many people welcomed me in and connected me, and there was this deep relationship and love among the people that go to church here. And when I heard stories like that, I just got so excited because that's the kind of place I want to be a part of. That's the kind of place I want my new friends and my new neighbors and this community to be a part of. And so I get to dream. I get to dream about what it's like for a church with that much rich history to think about the future and what it looks like when a group of people like us devote themselves more and more and more to each other and to Christ and to celebrating the sacraments and to prayer and to worship and all those things. So this morning, I want you to do that. I want you to sit back. I want you to relax hopefully won't shock you too much with any of my words, and I want you to dream with me. I want you to dream with me. Maybe the dream is just tomorrow or six months from now or a year from now, but what does this place look like? What does it feel like when people devote themselves to deeper and deeper and deeper connection? What does that look like? How does it feel to you? What does it mean to your family? And that's where we are this morning. That's what I want to do. You know, the interesting thing is that question, what does this look like? What does ecclesia look like? Is a common question 
that many groups of people back in the first century asked. And this church thing, this, this Christian thing, this Jesus guy was all new. And then there's just one group of people that the Apostle Paul came through and he saw. And he taught them about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came and he walked among us and he died for our sins. And he rose again so that we could be adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so he tells them this story, and it just wrecks them, right? It just it breaks their heart for the way that they've lived in the past, and it gets them excited about what the future looks like, and they get all together, and they're like, okay, let's do this thing. What does it mean? Okay, we believe in Jesus, and, 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 and Paul says that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that, and, and, and now we, we're supposed to be this ecclesia thing, and we're supposed to be called out together, and, and nobody knows. Nobody knows what it meant, and so Paul would say things like, well, it means that you like really trust each other and it, and it means that you don't put one group of people above the other group of people like masters and slaves and, and he's teaching them what it means. And then the craziest thing happens, Paul takes off. He goes to the next town and this group of people is kind of left going, oh, okay, is the, Paul, Paul, is there any, anything more or just, we just hang out together? What do we do? And so the apostle Paul would write letters and this is the way God gives us direction and guidance. Through the Apostle Paul in the first century, we have this letter, and we're going to take a look briefly at this letter. This group of people is the church in Galatia. And the church in Galatia often wondered, what does the future look like? We know Jesus died for us, and we know we're supposed to somehow love each other this new kind of deep love. What does it mean? How does it feel? How many people are a part of it? Who is a part of it? Are there groups of people we're supposed to exclude? Are there groups of people that we're supposed to include? How does it all work? So this morning, I want to sit back and I want to relax with you as God teaches us the way that he taught the church in Galatia, what it means to be an ecclesia in Jesus' name. So with that, I want to look at the passage this morning. This is going to be... Galatians chapter 6. And because of the series and because of where we are and because of who is here, I just want to take our time with this passage. Sometimes I, I go through passages lickety-split. Sometimes I like to take my time. So just bear with me as we, we absorb this text. <clears throat> chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Paul is writing them this letter, and you can imagine the group of people just eating the words up as one of his messengers is reading it to them. And Paul says to them, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, we'll just stop right there. We'll stop right there, because this is an important part of this chapter. And if we get this wrong, it takes us to a path that is, well, to be honest, a path of destruction, a path of pain, a path of judgment, a path of, of shame and guilt. But if we take it the way that Paul and God intended, we see it a different way. If someone is caught in a sin, and, and I think, because I'm a person and I have sins I struggle with, I'm a normal guy, I think caught like the time I flip the light switch on and my son's hand is in the cookie jar, like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, no, I don't know, I don't know. just hang out in the kitchen. That's what I think of when I think of the word caught. The word caught. Like, I think of um, John chapter 8 when the woman is caught in adultery, right? Like, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're dragging this woman, I imagine, like, by her hair. And they're like, look at this sinner. We caught her in the act 
of adultery. And everybody's wondering where the other partner in that act was. No one knows, disappeared. And she's full of shame and guilt, and you can just imagine her heart like breaking in two as she's found out. But that is not what Paul intends here when he says caught. What Paul intends is something very different. Caught means ensnared. It means burdened. It means that the weight of this brother or sister's sin is so great they can't take another step. And it was their choice that got them in it. But now they're beyond reach and they just don't know what to do. This is the kind of thing where they're, they're caught because they're literally walking with a limp. Like the image that I think we should use is like a rabbit caught in a snare. And if you've ever seen that, it's a horrible, heartbreaking picture. No other option. I'm ensnared. I'm trapped. I can't get out of this thing that I thought back then was going to be great. A brother or sister is caught in sin. And when you look at it like that, your heart starts to bleed a little bit. And you go, oh. And if you're logical and you have a good memory, you can remember the times that you were caught in a sin and you didn't know how to get out of it. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if you want to know what it means to be an ecclesia in the name of Jesus, when a brother or sister is caught in a sin, when he is in bondage, when he is trapped, this is what he says to do. You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Man, you who live by the Spirit, and if you know anything about the Spirit, if maybe this is information that you learned in Sunday school, maybe it's information you're going to learn for the first time this morning, but everybody that has accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that has understood who he is and what the gospel is and what that means to us, the fact that we are now adopted sons and daughters, if we've put our trust in him, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, and, and, and in Acts earlier in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came during Pentecost, and it was this new thing, and the Holy Spirit fell on these people. It was this radical change for them. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about people that have the Spirit, because if he was, he would have said that. Everybody that has the Spirit. Well, that's everybody in the church that's accepted Jesus. No, these are people that live by the Spirit. Oh, what does that mean? It's the kind of person that is guided by the Spirit, that, that has the Spirit and has made the decision daily to listen to the Spirit and let the Spirit guide them. Everybody has the Spirit, but I know, and you probably know this too, just because you have the Spirit doesn't mean you're listening to the Spirit. And there's been many times in my life where I've, I've heard what the Spirit wants me to do, and I go, eh, that sounds awful tiring. I kind of like my life the way it is. I'm comfortable. I don't think I'm going to go there. And the Spirit tells me something else, and I go, nah. That's not who Paul's talking about. And, and I think the assumption might be that, oh, man, these must be like super Christians, right? Like the elites, the top dogs of the Christian church, like must be the people that got it all figured out, that, that, have, that have like all the information, that knows everything. But that's not who live by the Spirit. In fact, to live by the Spirit means that you have to understand that you don't have anything figured out. You don't know what tomorrow looks like. You know that if you stop depending on the Spirit and living by the Spirit, you are a train wreck. That's what living by the Spirit means. It means you know what it's like to not live by the Spirit. 
those that live by the Spirit. These are the kind of people that watch your limp and they go, oh, I've had a limp like that. I know what he feels like. I know what she's going through. Come here, let's talk. I know exactly how you feel and I'm here to help. Those are the ones that live by the Spirit. They're the ones that will tell you out of the gate, I'm Josh and I have a problem and it's called sin. And I'm struggling and I'm working on this and the Spirit's working on it with me, but I'm I got nothing to do with pride because I know for a fact I've got it not figured out. Those are the ones that live by the Spirit. The Spirit, they should restore that person gently and restore. I I always want to assume this is like crack the whip, man. Get it back together. You screwed up. You stepped out of line. Get back in line. That's to me because of my background or my upbringing or what. That's what I assume restore means. Stop sinning. (laughs) Let's just start there. Stop sinning. That's restoration. But that's not what the word means. The word that they use in Greek here is is a medical word, and it means to mend. It means it's a kind of word that you would use if you dislocated your shoulder, and someone needed to mend your shoulder. They needed to set your shoulder back in place, and, and then we both know there's a lot of healing that has to go on. It's like when you fracture a bone, and you have to set that bone back in place so that it, that it heals and it gets better. It's not cracking the whip and making them get back in order and don't you ever step out of line again mentality. It's a mending and it's a gentleness that Paul is asking for. And then he does something really strange. And I've read this passage a dozen or plus times in my life and I read past it and I go, well, I almost think it was a mistake the next line in the verse, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. And you read that, and, and it's easy to go, oh, that's weird. <laughs> why, why, would he, why would he be correcting or, or warning the people that are doing the mending? These, these people live by the Spirit, right? They're the ones that are restoring, and they're doing it gently, and, and why do they have to be warned? And at first, I thought it was like, well, if you're dealing with someone who struggles with alcoholism or, or some sort of you know, public sin like that, and you go, oh, man, alcoholism, let me, let me help you out. And, oh, that looks tempting. Let me join you in that. That's kind of weird because if you're mending someone, if you're gently restoring someone, you see the nastiness of their sin. So it doesn't look appealing. It's like your brother comes to you and says, hey, I have, I have a struggle with pornography. I don't, I don't know how to get out of this thing. And you go, oh, pornography, that looks good. No, of course, you see the backside of it. You see the pain and the struggle and the, and the agony that that addiction puts his family through. Why would that tempt you? Because Paul's talking about a different kind of temptation. He's talking about something else that tempts those who still live by the Spirit that restore. This kind of temptation is it's the temptation to go, ah, yeah, that's sin. Well, when I was a lot younger, I struggled with that too. And let me tell you, tell you how to get out of that. It's pride. It's the slippery slope of having it all figured out together and, and, and learning all the information and having it in your head and going, I've got the answers. Let me just impart those to you. That's the temptation. That's the warning. Paul says, if you're going to find somebody, if you found somebody that's in sin and they're in bondage to that sin and, you, and, you, and you're going to re- live by the Spirit and you're going to restore them gently and you're going to do this in a kind-hearted way that, that isn't judgmental or hurtful or, or, or angry or anything like that, be careful. Be careful when you do that because the temptation is great for you to walk down this slippery slope of getting it all figured out and suddenly you're not living by the Spirit anymore. 
You're living with the Spirit. <laughs> He's with you. He's talking to you. But you're not listening because you got it figured out, right? In the next verse, Paul does this. He'll give you a couple of intro statements, and then he gives you the main idea. And it's like, why didn't you lead with that? Paul's building a little intrigue here. Verse 2, Paul says, listen, guys, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. Wow, Paul, why didn't you lead with that? Carry each other's burdens. This is the idea that, you know, you, you have this hiker, and he's got his pack on, and the pack is so heavy that it's weighing him down, and, and, and he could barely take another step, and his legs are shaking, and you see him, and you come up to him, and you say, brother, let me help you out. Let me get these boulders out of your pack. It's weighing you down. Let me in fact, let me just put my arm around you. Let's do this together. Come on, one step at a time. In fact, let me cut you a walking stick. Use the stick. One step at a time. Carry each other's burdens. Not, ha-ha, I found you out. Get back in line. That's not it at all. This phrase always comes back to me, you know. You got yourself in this mess. Get yourself out. Oh, it's so logical, right? You get caught. Well, you're the one who fell into the snare. I told you to leave her alone, and you wouldn't listen, and now look at the mess you're in. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's casting judgment. That's not carrying a burden. Carry a burden. And then he throws this little line in. By the way, this little detail. If you do this, if you're living by the Spirit, and if you find somebody who's hurting and trapped, and you restore them gently, and you're careful not to be conceited, you fulfill the law of Christ. A small little thing that Jesus, when he walked among us, said the thing that summarizes the entire law in prophets is to love your Lord, your God, with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second one is of equal importance, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. You do those things, Jesus says, and you are doing it. Paul says, if you, if you can restore your brother gently without finding conceit, you're literally doing what Jesus asked you to do. It's like you're, you're closing the circle that Jesus started of love. And, and just take a second. If you want to know where Grace Chapel's going, I think it starts with this statement. I don't care what it looks like. I, I don't really even care how we get there. I don't care what, the, what tomorrow looks like or a month from now looks like or six months from now looks like. If we are fulfilling the law of Jesus Christ, whew, sign me up. Take my money. I don't care. I want that. And I want that, and I want that for you, and I want that for me, and I want that for my wife and my kids and my neighbors and my friends. I want to fulfill the law of Christ with you people. And I can't wait to see that play out into our future. Verse 3, just in case we didn't get the memo, the message that Paul warned us about in verse 2, or I'm sorry, in verse 1. Verse 3 is, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. You're like me, you're kind of rolling your eyes at this point. Okay, Paul, we get it. We're not supposed to think we got it figured out. We, we got the pride thing. I am not prideful. But you know what really makes me angry when other people are prideful? That really bothers me. As it turns out, the thing that bothers you the most in other people is usually the thing that you struggle with. Think about it. 
that guy at work that constantly just talks about all the stuff he's done and the people he knows, he's name dropping like mad. Like, come on, dude, like relax. We know you're all that in a bag of chips, right? That just, I mean, I can, I can pick a guy out who's prideful by the way they walk. And it just so happens that's because I struggle with this little area in my heart that I have a really hard time giving over to God. That's pride. Paul says again, the second warning, be careful to not think you are something that you're not. Don't deceive yourselves. Just in case you don't get the memo, the two warnings in this five verses that we're looking at, he also says it again in Romans 12.3. He also says it again in 1 Corinthians 18. He also says it again in 1 Corinthians 8.2. He kind of makes this point a lot. Do not deceive yourselves into thinking you've got this thing licked. You've got it figured out. All your sins are private and hidden and no one knows about them. That doesn't mean that you're better than the guy that can't keep quiet. In fact, you have your own bondage that you're dealing with. That's your answer. Warning after warning after warning. It is easy to be conceited. It is easy to be prideful, especially when you're dealing with someone's garbage in a way that they can't hold back anymore and they're obviously walking with a limp. They're obviously ensnared. It's so easy to go, hmm. I too was once there. Yes. Struggle with that sin stuff. But now, I mean, after all, I've been a Christian for 30 years. After all, I've been a Christian for 60 years. I've got this figured out. Oh, it's so easy. And Paul knows it. Paul's not out of touch here. He knows what men struggle with. Paul is a man that has been at the top of his career. He was a man of power, of authority. People, he ruled over people. People came to him for advice and knowledge. And then he accepted Christ and he fell to the bottom of the spectrum and was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and people chased him and he didn't know who to trust because people were trying to kill him to the top, to the bottom. And Paul says, be careful. Be careful. He goes on. This fear or this conceitedness that, that usually comes out with two easily committed sins. And this is Satan's plan, right? He, he gets somebody to commit a sin, especially one that's really visible. And then he gets the guy that's really intending for good to help him, and he gets that guy to commit a sin. It's like the, the old-fashioned twofer. It's like two for the price of one, right? He loves this stuff. These are common pitfalls with pride. You see a brother that's struggling day after day, week after week, month after month. You can see it weighing him down, and you go, oh, it's not my business. It's, it's not my business. It's not, it's not my thing. I mean, that's his stuff. I, I'll let him take care of it. After all, I really love this guy, and I, and I don't want to jeopardize our relationship. I don't want to make it awkward. I mean, I mean, what if I bring this up, and he's like, whoa, you're out of my life. I'm not listening to you, and, and it's because this awkward thing. I, it's okay. I'm sure somebody else is dealing with it with him, right? Somebody, I'm sure the pastor might be walking with him through this, and it, it'll be fine. Oh, it happens all the time. That's a common pitfall. The second one isn't as common, but it's more damaging. It's the, whoa. <laughs> hey, so-and-so, did you see what, uh, how he treated his wife in the parking lot after church? Wow. 
man, if I treated my wife like that, she'd have me on the couch for a month, right? Oh, yeah, we like to joke and talk, and, and that gossip thread starts to grow, and so-and-so tells so-and-so tells so-and-so, and all of a sudden it's this thing, and it, and it sometimes comes out awkwardly at a potluck dinner or something, and, and the person's like, oh, oh, my gosh, I shared that with Joe in private, and now the whole church knows. That happens. Sometimes it happens and it's a public shaming like that and, and I can talk, I know people and I've talked to people that said, that happened to me and it was the last time I set foot in a church. Bunch of hypocrites. Oh, the story is so common. Never go back to church again after I was humiliated after I shared it with somebody. That's the second pitfall of pride. You see this in somebody's life and you don't know what to do about it, so you just, you just tell so-and-so. Maybe you ask an advice. Hey, so-and-so, I need some advice. I saw Joe and he's dealing with this thing. Wow, so-and-so asked for advice for advice. It's all a masquerade. It's a gossip chain, right? It's, it's, it's the slander. Brutal pitfalls cause so much damage. I'll just say it. I'll just say it. There's no room for pride in ecclesia. There's no room for pride at Grace Chapel. There's no room for pride in the future of where we're going. And I'll be the first one to say, I struggle with that. I need to give that to God more and more every day, and I need close, kind brothers around me to say, hey, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta watch that a little bit. I need to be gently restored, just like you need to be gently restored if you're wondering, wow, man, I hope he's not talking about me. I mean, I, I see pride in other people, but I don't know if I have it. It's, it's a big question in my, in my heart. I don't know. It's okay. It's okay. Paul's going to give us some suggestions. In verse 4, he says this, each one should test their own actions. How in the world do we test our own actions? I'll give you a hint. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the church in Corinth, why are you asking me this? You have Jesus inside of you. You have a direct line to the Son of the living God. Ask Him what He thinks. It's going to test your relationship with Jesus a little bit. This is your prayer life. Maybe tonight you go to your knees and you say, Jesus, uh, crazy pastor is talking about pride, and, and I'm pretty sure I don't struggle with it, but what do you think? Why don't you convict me if I have this in my heart? Ask Him. Test yourself. You're not above reproach in this way. I'm not above reproach in this way. Test yourself to know if pride is one of those secret little compartments deep in your heart. And he says something really confusing in verse 4. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take, whoa, 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 pride? They can take pride? We just got done. The pastor just lectured us for 20 minutes about pride, and now you're saying we can take pride? What in the world we can take pride in, our, in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else? What? It's like that classic thing where you use the word love for what you like. You know, I love tacos and you, you love your wife and it's two very different concepts. It's the same word. It's pride. But here's the difference. The pride that's a sin that wears us down, that ensnares us, that entraps us. It's the kind of pride where you compare yourself to your weaker brother and you feel good about it. So maybe here's a test for you. Who do you know in your life that is a little bit better than you at something? How does that feel? <laughs> what, about, what about when you do something really noble, really courageous, really kind, and no one sees it? 
Does that bother you a little bit? Man, I wish I'd done that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Whew. You can test yourself. And if you and Jesus come up with this idea that, that, you're, that you're not struggling, or, or maybe that, that thing, that pride bundle in your heart is being worked on, it's being worked out, you can take pride in that. You can say, you know what, to yourself and Jesus, I used to be this guy who would judge people up and down, and now my heart is, is breaking for my brothers and sisters who are struggling with the same stuff that I struggle with. That progression, you can take all kinds of pride in because that's you and Jesus. You don't need someone to compare to in order to feel good about it. And Paul's saying, take pride. Take pride in the maturity that God is doing in you. Take pride in the, in the movement that you have here. That's hard work. And it's embarrassing and it hurts and, it, and it's convicting. Take pride in that. So you can test your own actions and then we can take pride in ourselves alone without comparing to someone else. And then verse 5. Let me back up for a second. If you want to know a little bit more about pride, a really close friend of mine, really tight, his name's C.S. Lewis. And I hang out quite a bit. I do listen to his voice, but that's on Audible, so I think it's his voice. Maybe it's somebody else reading it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about pride and humility. He says this, if anyone would like to acquire humility, guess what, it's for sale. I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. <laughs> and, the, and it's a biggish, biggish step too. At least nothing, whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, you are very conceited indeed. <sighs> Oh, that's convicting. You will not solve a problem that you don't know exists. This is why me and C.S. Lewis are tight. He says it like very few can say it. And that convicts me. If I think I'm humble, chances are I'm prideful. And the first step of humility is admitting, yes, I struggle with pride. We can test these things. We can test it with Jesus in our life. And the last verse here that I got so excited about earlier, verse 5, for each one should carry their own load. Okay, Paul, you just told us to share burdens, and now we got to carry it on our own? Make up your mind, right? This is the way my men's Bible study goes in the morning. Paul will say something, and we, and we all go, whoa, 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 What? And when you say that, when you, when, you, when you catch yourself going, wait, that doesn't make any sense, just take a minute. Take a minute, let it soak in. Let it, let it absorb, your heart absorb it. Because Paul's talking about two different things. A burden is a sin that you are ensnared in that you cannot get out. It's like a cancer that eats away at your heart and you just can't get rid of it without help from the Holy Spirit and from brothers and sisters. A load is something different. And this is cool. A load is a call. A load is, is Jesus saying to Josh before Josh was even born, Josh, I want you to do this thing. I want you to live this way. I have these meetings and these appointments set up for you, and I, and I want you to do this. That's my load. That's my job. That's, that's my career in the kingdom of heaven. That's my family position. Carry your own load. 
which means you have to know what your job is and, and what the Spirit is asking you to do with it. And by the way, subsequently, our job in togetherness, all of our jobs in ecclesia is to share burdens with each other. It's part of my job. It's part of your job. This Christian life is not like this. Well, I accepted Jesus, so everything's cool now. <laughs> I get to do whatever. No, we got stuff we got to do. We got projects to work on. We got people to influence. Carry your load. Do what God is asking you to do. And we'll see this ecclesia grow in togetherness. It'll grow in tightness and in trust, in bonding, and it'll be awkward, <laughs> and it'll be exhausting, it'll be tiring, but we can see it happen. Here's the main idea this morning. This is the thing that if you heard nothing else, at least go back to the passage and read it this afternoon after the football games. But at least listen to this statement. This is the summary. Sharing burdens by living by the Spirit produces togetherness that our church, our ecclesia, and our community and our world desperately needs. And when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. Man, that's awesome. I want that. Question is how? How? We've, we've got some ethereal stuff here. We know we're not supposed to be prideful. We're supposed to help people with sin. Eh, it's all a little vague. How do we do it? Well, unfortunately, maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it, there's a simple how in this one. Very simple. Incredibly difficult to execute. But this is, I think, the way that we can do it. It goes like this. We sign up. We show up. We sit down. We ask questions. I know you guys thought I was going to do another S one. No, no, no. Threw you off there. Ask questions. One of the best ways you can open up and get someone else to open up so you can even see their limp, so you can even see their sin, is to say, how are you doing? Who are you? What do you do for a living? What's your wife like? How'd you meet her? What's the most frustrating thing about life? What's the most exciting thing about life? Tell me about your kids. Sign up. We got life groups. We got adult Bible classes. Casey's are throwing a party like every other Friday at their house, and you think I'm kidding, but there's sign-ups coming for that. You can literally sign up for a party at the Casey's. I would recommend it. And you sign up, and you show up, and you sit down, and you ask questions. And it's hard, and it's difficult, and, and, and if you're like me, you've got to keep your mouth closed long enough so that this person can get a word in edgewise. You've got stories, you've got experiences, you've got stuff you want to share. I get it. There's plenty of time for that. After you build a bond with someone that communicates you love them and you want to share your, their burdens with them, you want to share your burdens with them, sign up, show up, sit down, ask questions. Here's the thing. If it goes well for you, if you do these things and you fulfill the law of Christ week after week, Wednesday night at Life Group or Friday night at the Casey's or whatever you're doing, this is what's going to happen. And I think this throws people for a loop. You are going to be exhausted. It's, it's a kind of exhaustion when you're doing the kingdom work where you can barely drive on your way home. You're so tired because these people, you, you start asking questions and here's what's going to happen. People are going to be drawn to you like white on rice. You're not going to be able to keep people away. They're going to be firing off their stories like crazy, and you're going to be overwhelmed. That's fulfilling the law of Christ. That's getting to know them. That's getting into their lives. 
Don't worry, you can sleep it off. Show up next week. That's what the future looks like. That's what togetherness looks like. Sign up, show up, sit down, ask questions. And if we fail to give you a list to sign up on, you're not off the hook. There's an eternal list on our website. (laughs) You can sign up always on our website. If you're concerned or don't know how to use the internets, you can talk to Carol, she'll give you a lesson. (laughs) Sign up, show up, sit down, ask questions. And together, we will explore togetherness. Together, we will see what Ecclesia looks like for, for 2019 and 2020 and 2021. That's even weird to say. Sharing burdens when living by the Spirit produces togetherness that our church and our world desperately, desperately need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word in detail, to let it sink into our hearts. Thank you for for the opportunity, Lord, we have just to sing to you and to tell you how we feel, even though we don't have answers, even, even though sometimes we live by the Spirit and sometimes we just live with the Spirit. God, we love the fact that you know it's a struggle. And Jesus, I ask that you would move in the hearts of these dear people, that you would stir them up in ways that they've never been stirred, that they would bond with their fellow brothers and sisters, that they would devote themselves to you and your teaching and each other, and your communion into prayer. God, I ask that we would, even though it's awkward and difficult sometimes and schedules are hard to work out, that we would sign up, that we would show up, that we would sit down, and we would ask questions of our brothers and sisters. God, I ask if there's anybody in this room this morning that has a burden and they've never told a living soul about it and it's just killing them, God, give them courage. Give them courage to open up to one of their brothers and sisters. And Lord, please give that brother or sister trepidation and humility and the the ability to mend and to repair and to work with that person in a loving and gentle way to get them out of the pit that they seem to find themselves in. Jesus, above all, guide us. Let us live by your spirit. In your name, amen.